Second Samuel chapter 13. I want to go back just for a moment. <clears throat> it's um, not about this evening's chapter, but last Wednesday's study on Bathsheba. I didn't get to a few points about her that I feel are critical. And then we'll resume with chapter 13. But I, I believe that she is the woman of Proverbs 31. It starts off the words of King Lemuel, Proverbs 31.1, the utterance which his mother taught him, do not give your strength to women, nor your ways to that which destroys kings. Well, the rabbis believe, ancient Jewish writers believe, that Lemuel it was another name for Solomon. And, of course, the instructions fit the life of David with Bathsheba. And then in verse 30 of Proverbs 31, Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears Yahweh, she shall be praised. And so I, I have you know, very high regard for Bathsheba and all she went through in spite of her, her failure. She recovered and uh, just did not want to leave it out because I like to share uh, in my position what moves me when I study the Scripture. In fact, everything pretty much that I say is because something has moved me and I feel, uh, as, as uh, Paul said, that which I first received, I give to you. And that, that's how it should work, I think. Well, that's it uh, for the catch-up. And uh, now we look at chapter 13. The title is The Crown Creep. Not the town creep. He was that too. But he is the crown prince who is really the crown creep. It's a nauseating story, and I wish we could skip it. Uh, there are two vile, disgusting, repulsive, vomitous characters in this chapter. <laughs> and if you really want to know what I feel about it, you can ask me later. And uh, if you're not familiar with chapter 13, you'll find out why I'm saying these things. Uh, this is the beginning of strife in David's life, the outcome of his failure to... <clears throat> Uh, correct his children, yes, but also directly linked to his murder of Uriah. That was the outstanding sin. But back to his inability to correct his children. It's picked up in 1 Kings when Adonijah tried to usurp the throne. It was clear that Solomon was to be David's successor to the throne. Adonijah was older, felt he should get it. And we read in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 5, Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. And his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, Why have you done so? So this, be, this was, became a characteristic of David as a father and as a leader. And it's all connected to his sin where I, I think that, you know, the guilt was just heavy on David and it just undermined his, his leadership to a large degree and we'll come to that as we move forward. In this 13th chapter, uh, the name of God is not mentioned. There's no direct reference to God. And I think that belongs to the events that are taking place. So let's look at verse 1. After this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. 
Well, um, absol- uh, after this, that's after the events with David and Bathsheba, Nathan coming and pronouncing judgments and blessings. Uh, but then it goes on to say, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar. A lovely sister. It stands out. In chapter 14 and verse 7, the last reference to Tamar, it says in verse 27, she was a woman of beautiful appearance. And so she had uh, the beauty and she had the personality to go with it. <clears throat> and that says a lot about her. And as we look at uh, how she was treated, we just scratch our heads and say, you know, sin is nothing to fool around with. She was not, um, she was Absalom's full sister. He was renowned for his good looks and his long hair. And I never liked that about him, the long hair part. Uh, We'll come to that later. Anyway, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. This is the crown prince. He's next in line to the throne. If you somehow get rid of the fact that Nathan has already said Solomon is going to sit on the throne. Anyway, he was crowned prince by right and crowned creep by choice. He was ruthless. He was self-impressed. He was self-exalted. The title that he would be given today, well, if you looked looked outside of Christianity for a character like him, you'd have to go to, you wouldn't have to, but you could go to Greek mythology, and there you would find Narcissus, who looked at his own uh, reflection in the water and fell in love with himself. He didn't love anybody else until he saw himself. And of course, there have been those who have tried to characterize this as a disorder in human behavior, therefore softening, in my opinion, uh, the evil Uh, of arrogance, which this is, just arrogant, Uh, behaving uh, above your station. I mean, thinking that you're greater than everybody else, and everybody else exists to serve you. Others exist to satisfy me, because they are inferior. Whether they know it or not is irrelevant. It is a hidden mentality, but it's there in some people. Uh, These characters who are so in love with themselves to the point where they abuse others, they they know how to fly beneath the radar and not be detected. Unless they're very powerful, then they don't care. Otherwise, they have to sort of hide it from those who would give them a good beatdown for it. And they get away with cowardly behavior. They get away with it. Amnon is one of these people. Manipulative. And this particular sin, this arrogance, is potentially violent. Uh, It first appeared in Lucifer. That's how serious it is. And so I'm not into giving it, he's a narcissist. Uh, That's a light, I mean, I can't, it it serves our purpose. But I think it's much more deeper than that. Some disorder. There's something satanic about this at some point. It can really... So Isaiah 14, this is uh, one account of what uh, the soliloquy of, K- of Satan. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Then there is the city of Nineveh, personified by the prophet Zephaniah. This is the rejoicing city. He's talking about Nineveh that dwelt securely, that said in her heart, 
I am it, and there is none beside me. This was Amnon. This is this character we're going to meet tonight. This is how he lived. And he's not the last or the first one. That self-exaltation to the point where you reduce everybody else to serve your purpose. Self-obsessed. He's spoiled. He was allowed to have whatever he could get his hands on to. He becomes this defective character who's just lawless. Why didn't somebody discipline him early in his life? I I mean... You, you, you come to this story and you, you say, there's so much to learn from the behavior of these people and from the bystanders. Was he ever told no by his parents? You can't do that. That is not yours. Um, well, we're not told explicitly, but you'll stick around long enough and you find out that when this uh, the child is not corrected, that they can become like this. When they don't learn how to behave, when they don't when they don't learn that they are accountable for their actions, when no one teaches them that sneaking and getting something that you want that's not yours is wrong and it has to be dealt with. What happens when that education is not given to a child? Well, that's what we started off with David. He wouldn't correct Adonijah at a critical moment. He let it go. Now, some children will resent being corrected. Let them resent it. Be the good parent. I mean, they're a little, you don't want to be, you know, overbearing on the child. You know, fathers, uh, do not provoke your children to wrath, um, Paul warned, which is good because sometimes fathers can be just, you know, it's just a boy. Let them them be a boy and not raising a, you know, a state trooper. Uh, James, where do wars and fights come from among you? Well, everybody knows the other driver. Simple answer, James. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Well, this is, this is where it's coming from. The flesh, what sin has done to man. And what happens when it is unbridled, when it's not checked? <clears throat> Amnon, is, I know we haven't even gotten to him yet. This buildup, I better deliver if you don't know the story, right? <clears throat> He's one of the easiest people to dislike and find contemptuous in Scripture. I mean, he's worse than Saul. He never had the power. And he's got a sidekick, Jonadab. We'll meet that Machiavellian in a moment. But um, he's in line for the throne, Amnon. He doesn't care. He just gets everything handed to him. I don't resent him for being born with a proverbial silver spoon in his mouth. I resent how he treats other people. That's where the conflict comes in. And so now, verse 2, Amnon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick. Well, she was a virgin. And it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. Well, we just read how he loved her, which is just was lust. This is forbidden in Leviticus 18.11. The nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, begotten by your father, she is your sister. You should not uncover her nakedness. Explicit law. This meant nothing to him because his type believed they're above the law. The law doesn't apply to them. They're too special. 
But they're coward enough to watch how they pull it off because they're afraid that there are those that won't play their game with them. This is Amnon. It was improper, it says here in verse 2, for Amnon to do anything with her, as I just read from Leviticus. But <clears throat> spoiled little palace brat, <clears throat> he, would, uh, he would have what he's entitled to. Um, you know, thieves feel that they're entitled to what you own, what you work for. It's a twisted way of thinking, but that is it. And so you take a, a low-level thief roaming the streets. Anything he can get his hands on, he's going to try to get it. But he won't think about stealing the crown jewels of England. That's just too far-fetched. But he will try to take what he can reach. And Amnon, he can reach Tamar. Uh, um, I don't think he would have messed with one of Absalom's girlfriends or wives or anything like that. It's my point. Is they, they know how to fly, again, beneath the radar, which makes them uh, effective from Satan's perspective. I'm... I'm trying not to become too angry at the man <laughs> for my own sake. Um, verse 3. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother. Now, Jonadab was a very crafty man. Hmm. It says that Amnon had a friend. Yeah, a friend from hell. That's what he is. What a lesson to those who don't know how to choose friends. Well, there's two parts to that. If you don't know how to choose friends, you've got to learn. That's one number one. And then you've got to implement what you learn. You cannot let your feelings talk you out of it. <clears throat> Jonadab was an opportunistic fiend of a friend, as we'll get later verses when he's trying to impress David with information he should not have had, incidentally. And evil friends are really enemies. You don't want them on your team. If you can't convert them, you've got to abandon them, if you can. <clears throat> Both these men knew they were wrong in what they were going to conspire against this lovely sister, Tamar. But that didn't stop them. She was defenseless. Who cares? All the more reason to go forward. Villages tend to have at least one village Jonadab who's ready to give advice and be a mastermind to the crime. What, a, what would have happened if Jonadab was a righteous man? <clears throat> oh, very easy. Very easy question to answer. He would not have been allowed to be the friend of Amnon. Amnon would not have somebody like him around. Somebody upstanding and decent? No way. These kind of people, they gravitate to each other. They know. They can look and tell. Within a few minutes, they can say, this guy is not going to like me. And they'll go look for a weaker soul or someone who's just not on guard. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is especially for you younger Christians. Do not be deceived. Which implies that there are spiritual forces that will trick you. Evil company corrupts good habits. Uh, you cannot um, get around it. <clears throat> the son of Shemia, David's brother. So he's cousin to both David and to Amnon. <clears throat> Jonadab was a very crafty man. Perhaps one of the greatest understatements in Samuel's writings, or the writings that have his name, of course. Satan has his counselors too. 
And that's what's implied by he was crafty. It's not a compliment. He, he had, you know, it was like Lex Luthor, the character in Superman. He was a genius. Why didn't he use any of it for good? But he did not use any of it for good. He opted to use it for evil. And this is the case with Satan's counselors. He coached a rapist. He set it up for him. Verse 4. And he said to him, Why are you, the king's son, becoming thinner day after day? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. I'm sorry for that. I can't help it. And I don't want to help it. Because he's, he just, he, he, he just I, I want to get this guy. <laughs> this is the same line that happened with Jezebel and her husband Ahab. Why are you so sad? I can't, Naboth won't sell me his vineyard. What? You're the king. You don't have to worry about that. Let's kill him. And she doesn't tell him that. She just goes ahead and has it done. He could care less. Ooh, I got the field. Uh, anyway, God didn't forget. And when the prophet confronted her, he says, you know, dogs are going to eat you. And that is what happened. Uh, so back to Amnon. Uh, this Jonadab comes in. And he is, a, he is so frustrated that he cannot have what he wants, that he's lost his appetite. You say, something's wrong with that boy. Yeah. He's, he is just out there. He is a sicko with sin. Um, it's a pathetic story. So he knew who to sulk in front of. Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. He was lust sick, not love sick. And subsequent events, of course, prove, you know, if you're reading this for the first time in the story, you probably have some part of you that can relate to him on a, you know, not agree with him, but say, I understand that, you know, but that's just the way it is. But then you read the rest of the story and you can't stand the guy. Love would never have treated her the way he will. And he hated being denied what he thought he could get. A lifetime of not being corrected. It perverted him. Verse 5, so Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, please let my sister Tamar come and give me food. And prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. And so there he is coaching him. Ha, this problem's nothing. Here's what you do. He is a very crafty man. This is a criminal conspiracy to trap Tamar against the law, against her will. It's painful to read. Set the trap for the lovely sister he advises. Jonadab, as mastermind, is a type of Satan here. This is how Satan gets to people helps them plan their evil. In the Proverbs, talks about them at night on their bed, planning and plotting their crimes. Proverbs 6.18, speaking of what things, some things God hates, here's one of them. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil. No salt there to restrain, to resist, to arrest the forward motion of corruption. Verse 6, <clears throat> then Amnon lay down, and pretended to be ill. 
And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let Tamar, my sister, come and make a couple of cakes for me in my sight that I may eat from her hand. So, of course, he's lying. He's um, just sinister. Why is he even asking such a thing? Because he's up to no good. He's like a viper that strikes to cause pain. He's fooled enough people into thinking that he was either good or not so bad. That's what irks me about people like this, is they get away with it. Other people believe them. Because, you know, you just, we, we can't, oh, you can't read his heart. Uh, yeah, sometimes you can. Sometimes you really can. But that uh, is not the normal. And so no one saw what was coming. David didn't see it. No one, I don't think, I, I don't even know that Jonadab really saw the extent of what was happening. I don't know. I'm not going to give him a break. For James chapter 1. And now, again, here, just pause for a minute. The temptation to say, well, I shouldn't judge these two men because I don't want to be holier than thou is inappropriate. The lesson is here to say, this is wrong and don't be confused about it. Don't try to sugarcoat this and say, well, it really wasn't that bad because, you know, we all sin. That's why David doesn't correct it. Because he had come to a place where he said, well, who am I? Look what I did to Uriah. He should have said, look, what I did to Uriah was wrong, but I'm the king. And what you did to Tamar is wrong. And he, but he does not do that. Well, James chapter 1, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. All right, we all have that experience. Then, when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And it is full grown in this man. It will bring forth his death. Verse 7. And David <clears throat> sent home to Tamar, saying, Now go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. Well, David is oblivious. Um, and, and God left him so. Before his crime, uh, I'm, God may have given him to more to discern what was going on. Now, he's not completely oblivious to everything around him, which comes out later, but he is oblivious to this. Now, <clears throat> why would he suspect that such a vile crime was about to be committed on the lovely sister of Absalom? You really can't blame David for that here. Um, it's interesting that both Amnon and Absalom have their own houses. It's good to be so high up on the uh, chain of, uh, or the high up, what's the word I want? Hierarchy? You, you know what I mean. Uh, but it, it's good to be there. And that's where they were. They had these benefits from being princes. Verse 8, so Tamar went to her brother's house, uh, Amnon's house, and he was lying down. Then she took flour and kneaded it, made cakes in his sight, and baked the cakes. That, that's always a funny phrase to me, that she needed the flour. Of course they needed the flour. How else could you make the bread? Um, this is just a cute little thing there. Anyway, <clears throat> she had no idea that this serpent was coiled up and about to strike. The uh, only sickness this man had was spiritual rot. Verse 9. Oh, pause again. There are people that are this wicked. There are some people... Even, you know, there are some people that are bad and not good, but they have something redeeming about them. Then there are others that you can't find anything redeeming about them. They're just rotten through and through. 
And we have a hard time accepting that because we say, well, I'm not that bad and I'm not that great, but there's got to be something good in the person. There's an old joke about a pastor that was asked to do a funeral for the town creep, one of the creepiest guys. And uh, his brother was the one asking, can you, not the brother of the pastor, the brother of the bad guy that died. He said, can you do this service for my brother? But both of them were, were evil. And the one asking was worse than the one that died. And he said, can you do this service, but you've got to say something good about him. And so the pastor said, I'll do it. But, and he's scratching his head to himself saying, I don't know what I'm going to say good about him. So he gets up to the pulpit and he says, uh, at that part to himself, well, I've got to say something good. Okay, here it goes. He says, you know, so-and-so, he was really a rotten creep, a, a criminal. And uh, it's not surprising that death came to him early. But... I can say this about him that is good. Uh, compared to his brother, he wasn't that bad. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, um, I've always held on to that <laughs> in case I'm ever asked. You've got to say something good, okay? You asked for it. Anyway, verse 9. And she took the pan, placed it before them, before him, but he refused to eat. Then Amnon said, have everyone go out from me. And they all went out from him. She is doomed. She's in the trap. She doesn't even know it. Verse 10. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the bedroom, said the spider to the fly, that I may eat from your hand. I mean, I mean, that, I mean, she's, I wonder what's poor little thing. She's probably so innocent. She doesn't see it. Or she's getting a little creeped out. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them to Amnon, her brother, in the, bride, uh, in the bedroom. So the lure, you can smell uh, the, the defiled breath of this whining, cursed man. Um, verse 11. Now when she had <clears throat> brought them to him to eat, um, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. Like a constrictor. He's, he's just... Um, in other people, other cultures at this time, it was not uncommon for them to marry half-sisters. But it was clearly, as I read from Leviticus, forbidden in Israel. <clears throat> and... Uh, Verse 12, and she answered him, no, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. It's incestuous rape. That's what he's, where he's going with this. Uh, devils can't be reasoned with. Otherwise, um, <clears throat> we would not have to give our law enforcement the means to enforce the law. Verse 13, and I... Where could I take my shame? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel, because he is. Now, therefore, <clears throat> please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. Now, I'm up here suppressing coughs, and I'm getting the thought that God is kind of like suppressing me. So, you know what? You need to just chill it out a little bit. In your displeasure towards this man. 
because uh, he, he just really, you know, some things just get you. And, and this is one for me. I would like to lop his head off. If I, you know, I, I'm, this is the one time I'm going to sympathize with Absalom when we get to the bottom of this chapter. But <clears throat> he would rather ruin her life than be denied his moment's pleasure. He didn't care anything about her. Verse 14, however, he would not heed her voice. And being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. Well, this is uh, now a crime scene in any culture. Uh, well, uh, I, I probably should walk some of that back. In Saudi Arabia and Pakistan and some of the other countries like this, it's not a crime. Um, I think we did this in 2008, and I say that, this section last time, I say that because in my notes I had a, a time stamp about what was in the headlines at that time, and what they were doing was an expose on women who had been maimed by men in Pakistan. And it's just a horrible story. And so, you know, this is not something that's archaic. It still goes on, and worse. What she experienced is worse in, in some countries. In fact, I was just watching a documentary on Saudi Arabia that they, you know, they had these hidden cameras. And, and there's this lady walking in a supermarket, just walking down the aisle. And this man just slams into her, knocks her on the ground, gives her a kick, and walks on like a complete stranger. And uh, this is just, you know, the evil that is out there. Uh, <clears throat> so back to verse 14. However, he would not heed her voice. And there the deed has taken place. It will be two years before Absalom can get him dead. Uh, but because, well, I'll open that up as we go. Verse 15. And Amnon hated her exceedingly. So that, he hate, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise and get out. That's what that means. Be gone. Now, the Greeks, of course, have a richer language, I think, than ours. Not, that's not a, you know, a, a bitter statement. But when we come to the New Testament, we get the words for... Four different words for love we get to use. And it's a, good, it's a good thing to make a distinction between... The love of things, phileo, uh, the love of <clears throat> uh, romantic love, eros, not always evil. Sometimes it can be, but so can phileo. I mean, if you love to rob banks, uh, I've got a doctorate in writing <laughs> robbing banks. Stroge, family love, and then, of course, agape, agape, the superior love, the spiritual love. Uh, but in the Hebrew, it's not that way. And so to, for, him, for them to say, you know, he loved her, the Greek would, would likely break that down for us. But the story does it itself, so we don't, you know, we're not at a loss. But when you read this, at least when I do, I feel a little irritated when they say he loved her, because that was never part of, he loved himself, that's who he loved. Uh, so again, crown prince by right, crown creep by choice. He does this crime, and now he tells her to get out, and it says that he had an intense hatred for her. He is, again, one of the easiest people to dislike in the Bible. He has no virtue. There's nothing noble about him except his title. He wanted no reminder of what he just did. And so he wants her gone. Made him feel uneasy about himself. You can't have that if you love yourself. You have to only have things that make you feel, that serve you. 
This story reveals how incredibly cruel stupid males can be. Now, there is also Queen Athaliah that we'll meet in Kings. She was just as vile. So it is a human thing and not limited to gender. Though men are able to do it, I think, certainly more than women is uh, just a fact. Um, So that he hated her, it says here, which he had, uh, so that the hatred which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. So his evil morphed into more evil. And when he tells her to arise and be gone, his true colors are fully out. They were already out earlier, but now they're just way out there. No witnesses on her behalf. And uh, some will continue to respect this fool as he struts around the town and the palace. They'll think, oh, there's Amnon. He's the crown prince. Isn't that a wonderful robe? He's such a handsome young man, not knowing he's a monster. Verse 16. So she said to him, no, indeed, this is evil. This evil of sending me away is worse than the other evil you did to me. But he would not listen to her. So her useless protest, she's a helpless victim. I wonder how many other victims he had um, already made before this event. Verse 17. Then he called his servant who attended him and said, Here, put this woman out away from me and bolt the door behind her. Anybody like this guy? Because if you do, we need to have a talk. Um, Anybody think I was too hard on this guy? I'm not finished. So um, he he put her out and bolt the door behind you. Uh, Zephaniah 3.5, the unjust, no, no shame. It It doesn't phase them anymore. They're seared with a hot iron, his conscience is. Where are the people who need to hear these things? You say, what's the value of having these stories? Well, some will hear and and learn. It it begins to shape and form their character. And many times there's such good things in the Bible. Have you not said, boy, I wish so-and-so was here for this sermon. I don't need it, but he does. Uh, We all have, I think. You can't help it because the Bible is just so spot on with certain human behaviors. Peter says this, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin. These guys are just that far out there. Listen to what he says. Enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. Man, that's severe. They're trained in covetousness. They do it so, it's, it's you know, the training kicks in. <laughs> we have that saying, if you train enough, you're, you're, it becomes second nature. Well, <clears throat> covetousness became second nature. They saw something that they wanted, it was there, they went after it. And he says they're accursed, they're damned for that behavior. Um, <clears throat> I am not psychoanalyzing these people, I'm just simply... Telling the story as is needed. This is a sentence that they put on themselves. If humans exclude God from their thinking, they will find themselves with no moral sense, no moral values. 
Their standards of right and wrong will be confused. And that's what we're seeing in this man. God was not in any of his thoughts. Mankind without the living God becomes barbaric. Uh, What is there to check and to control him? We know as Christians that we struggle when you know some with some things because God is real to us. If He weren't real, there's a lot of things we wouldn't struggle with. And this is what's happening in our culture. And they're trying to, of course, rate. Um, you know, there's something very satisfying about killing a fruit fly. I didn't get the satisfaction. Anyway, um, Solomon says spiders dwell in palaces, and we can say fruit flies fly in churches. Uh, anyway, verse 18. Now she had on a robe of many colors for the king's virgin daughters wore such apparel and his servant put her out and bolted the door behind her. It's okay. Just wait a second. Okay. One less fruit fly. Um, I'll save that for later. A snack. Anyhow, uh, how, they don't taste like fruit, I should add. <laughs> I don't know why they call them that. <laughs> it's a little nutty, but anyway. Uh, this is kind of important to the story. The exact meaning of the robe of many colors is debated in the Hebrew. There are some translations that say she was wearing long, it means long sleeves. And if you look up the Greek word, or the Hebrew word, you can see how they're, it's sort of a, a picturesque word. Uh, it, it paints a, a word picture for us. It uh, is likely that it's both. She had a multicolored robe that had long sleeves. Josephus, writing in <clears throat> the days of Christ, wrote that in ancient times, virgins wore long-sleeved tunics reaching to the ankles. And so this distinguished them that they were unmarried. Uh, Among the Amish, um, the men without beards are not married. The men with beards are married. In our culture, you know, men and women wear rings. And so it's not something far-fetched. But what's happening, she'll no longer be able to dress like this, and everybody will know she's not a virgin, and she's not married. What a shame, a social stigma put on her because of this, this man, who, uh, I'll tell you what I think about him later. Verse 19, then Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her robe of many colors, because there's no longer any use to her, that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went away crying bitterly. Life as she knew it, as she had hoped That it would be was now a wreckage. It would not be that. And in that society, it would be difficult for her to find a good husband at this point. We don't read any more about her in the scripture. Just the mention of her beauty in the next chapter. And that will be it. Um, Things could have gone well for her. The writers were occupied with the participants primarily in the line of the Messiah. And the circumstances surrounding them and in uh, the influences of good against evil, Scripture against, of course, sin. Verse 20, And Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. So Tamar remained desolate 
in her brother Absalom's house. So Absalom cares for Tamar very much, enough to kill for her. And uh, apparently he's a little familiar with Amnon and, and how he does, how he conducts himself. How does he know to say, have you been with your brother Ab, uh, Amnon? Amnon. Um, again, he probably knew there were other victims. I, I, we're not told. He says, but hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. So he comforts her. Uh, unlike Amnon, Absalom, is he's going to be pretty creepy himself, but not as bad as Amnon, in my view. Um, he, he, I don't think he can take revenge on Amnon, not very easily. So he's going to wait for the opportunity. He's going to wait two years for that opportunity. But his hatred is such as that it will, it will fortify him. It will give him the patience. And uh, when the opportunity presents itself, he, he's going to take it. So Tamar, it says here in verse 20, remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. Her virtue stolen just because of one awful individual. Uh, verse 21, But when King David heard of these things, he was very angry. Yeah, well, we can get a little angry too because that's where the story stops with David concerning this. Where was the justice? Where was the punishment as king? Why did he not do more? Poor leadership, poor parenting. Uh, it, I'm not trying to be too hard. You know, David is still my hero because he's such a godly man. And he does rebound in the end. Uh, but this is a great letdown. He allowed this poison vine to live and grow within the palace. It's not by a mis mistake that God has set the head above the heart in our physical bodies. I think it's, uh, you know, it, there's a lesson there. You, you cannot allow your, your emotions to overrule your, your intellect, what you know is right and wrong. It's a common practice, and it usually ends up in disaster. When, when we lose sight of this as Christians, uh, there are some Christians, you know, they're almost, you know, believe in magic. They, you know, it's like, man, it's just totally emotional. It's unfounded in the scripture. There's no proof for it. And uh, it's too bad to see that. But verse 21, but when King David, uh, well, we're already in verse 21. So I want to say a little bit more about this. I do believe that guilt destabilized his sense of judgment and justice because he himself had broken the law in a very awful way. Uh, it's it's terrible. I remember years ago, I, I had a custom van, and I drove it to see a friend far away. And he had these little little boys, and they're throwing rocks really close to my van. And they, they're like, they, they, they're adjusting their fire, getting closer and closer. And he's standing right next to me, and I'm just waiting for him to say something. And he, and he doesn't. And then finally he says something, and they listen, and they continue to throw rocks, and he doesn't say anything else. And so I had to say, I mean, what an awful situation. Like, fix those boys. What's wrong with you? Man, I'm still upset with that. I've forgiven him. But I still don't like it. So you see parents sometimes, like, can you just tell the kid to stop? I mean, it's a little child. They, they need that. They want you to set those boundaries. 
I mean, I mean, I can understand little things, you know, you have to dismiss, but there's some things that are explicit, and he says, I can't give you a pass, son. You, you, you can't be doing that. A little boy that goes around shoving a little kid, and they fall on the ground or something like that. Anyway, you know, you all know. Everybody knows. Uh, anyway, here is this, the giant killer David. He is weakened. And it hasn't always been this case. I, for instance, when the Amalekite came and strutted up, yeah, I killed Saul, David had him killed. When <clears throat> the two assassins of King Ishbosheth came up and said, we killed him, here's his head, David had them killed. He wouldn't tolerate that stuff. Now he's not that man because of sin. It's sort of like, well, you know, we all mess up to a fault. Uh, yeah, when, you, when it's time to forgive even restore sometimes, you, that is handy. But when there is no repentance, when the crime is still unaddressed, that is a tool of Satan to look the other way. Oh, it, it becomes a negligence that cannot be tolerated, criminal even. And this is going to cause Absalom to say, then I'm going to have to execute vigilante justice. I'll deal with Amnon because the law is not dealing with him. And David is the law. Verse 22, And Absalom spoke to his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he forced his sister Tamar. This is an undying hatred, and we can easily understand it. Verse 23, And it came to pass after two full years. <coughs> Almost made it. It's that fruit fly. I'm allergic to them. I shouldn't be eating them. It came to pass, actually, I feel a little better after that. <clears throat> it came to pass after two full years that Absalom had sheep shearers in Belhazor, which is near Ephraim. So Absalom invited all the king's sons. Again, his was a patient hatred, and he knew it would pay off. This fortified his patience. He would get revenge for Tamar. I don't think he liked Amnon to begin with. So he's biding his time for the right moment. In verse 26, when David says, why do you want Amnon to go? You get the feeling that, you know, people around the palace always knew Absalom might get this guy. Belhazar, about 12 miles northeast of Jerusalem, <clears throat> where this was taking place, that would help his escape across the Jordan. But they're harvesting wool, a very festive time. Verse 24, <clears throat> then, Am then Absalom came to the king and said, kindly note, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. Now Absalom knows David's not going to go. But he had to make the offer. And he has to get Amnon to go. And this is how he's going to do it. And one reason why he knows David's not going to go, a couple of reasons. One is David's older now. What's for him, the king, at a sheep shearing? I mean, he's got better things at the palace. And to pack up an entourage and go watch sheep get their wool taken off is just not high up on a king's list. <laughs> and a a Absalom knows this. And he's, so he's saying, but it's going to be a festival for, for the princes, my, my brothers, my stepbrothers. And David is like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not going. Uh, there's a game on today, and we've got a fresh refrigerator of good stuff. I'm just not going to go. 
Verse 25, but the king said to Absalom, no, my son, let us not all go now, lest we be a burden to you. Then he urged him, but he would not go, and he blessed him. I, I picture David, whenever I read this, I get this picture in my head of him trimming a bonsai tree. <laughs> Absalom is saying, come on, Dad. No, I don't think so, my son. And he's just very philosophical as he's, you know, have you heard the sound of the one hand clap? Um, no, there's no such thing. Stop it. That Zen stuff does not work. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, he tells him no, just as Absalom expects. Because if David goes, he's bringing bodyguards, and it would, the whole plan would go south. Then Absalom said, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. I, I'm sure to say the name must have pained him. Uh, and the king said to him, why should he go with you? You see, there's a flag. Why would David even say that? You think he would say, that's great. That's great. <laughs> He's trimming the bonsai. You know, that's great that you invite your brother and you've put the past behind you. No, he doesn't do this. He, he, he catches it. His sense is he's still warrior enough to know uh, there's a conflict here. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> he's going to dismiss it, David is. His instincts are going to just fade right out of the way in favor of an ideal that doesn't exist, that his boys are going to get along together. Listen to the King James Version. Let me set it up for you. <clears throat> Next chapter, Joab is going to try to get Absalom back into the kingdom. To do this, he comes up with a plan to get the woman of Tekoa, a wise woman of Tekoa, to come and lay out this ex elaborate story to David and then sort of pull a Nathan, David, you're the man. And uh, David's going to say, all right, all right, he can come back, and, but I don't want to see him. And this is just the, the emotional drama surrounding all of this. But the King James, its language, I think, is much more poetic in, in describing one of her punchlines or leading up to it. She says, and thy, thy handmaiden had two sons, and they strove together in the field. And there was no one to part them, but the one smote the other and slew him. There was no one to part them. These two men, Ammon and Absalom, are going now to the same field, and there will be no one to part them. Absalom's not going to, you know, do the deed. He's going to have his shank-carrying servants carry it out. But uh, anyway, this is... Uh, this is a very much a lot to think about if you are the, a, a, a grow, you know, growing up and you know, you're learning these things. When, you know, a ministry in a city, an inner city especially, the things we take for granted in our upbringing are often absent in people. They just don't have it. They don't even know to have it. Um, I remember as a, I spent a lot of time when I was 12, 13 in Chinatown. Well, even a little boy, a, a lot of time there. And I just was always, I, I wrote it off to that's their culture, but they would, the older Chinese would never hold a door for you if you were following them into a building. You could guarantee if it was an old Chinese lady, she'd just go in and no, no looking back. And they weren't trying to be, at least I didn't think they were trying to be rude. It was their culture. 
and I accepted that. But uh, my point is <laughs> not everybody shares our upbringing, and we take these things for granted. I completely have forgotten what that has to do with Amnon and Absalom. Anyway, verse 27, and Absalom urged him, so he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. As children do, they give you all the good reasons why, as though you were too dumb to figure out that they were, you know, playing you, and, and they say, I got dad again. It's like, yeah, yeah, dad saw what you was like. He just felt sorry for you. Can't even put your right shoes on the right foot. Anyway, <laughs> that's not true. Uh, verse 28. Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Watch now when Ammon's heart is merry with wine, <clears throat> and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. And only Amnon's death would, would cool Absalom. Uh, if there was no other sentence that David could have given to him, I think that would have atoned. Verse 29, so the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each one got on his mule and fled. So vigilante justice for the sexual predator here. And as always, at some point, Satan abandons his useful fools after they have served his purposes. Uh, this getaway on mules, mules can run, can reach speeds of almost 30 miles an hour, maybe more, without a person on them, I'm sure, but um, it's a hard fact to find on the internet, actually. I was pretty surprised. They've given you all sorts of other information. Anyway, uh, the mules, the Jews weren't supposed to hybrid animals. You weren't supposed to mix a horse and a donkey. But evidently, they had no problem buying them from people who did it for them. And that's what, that's what you have here. Sort of like <clears throat> telling a little child with a doll, don't touch that, and they take the doll's hand and touch it. It's like, I'm not touching it. Technically, the doll is touching it, not me. Anyway, uh, verse 30, And it came to pass, while they were on the way, that news came to David, saying, Absalom has killed all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Well, as is frequent, uh, you know, initial reports are often very inaccurate. So the king arose, verse 31, and tore his garments and lay on the ground, and all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. Quite a dramatic <clears throat> picture there. A lot of noise. Um, verse 32. Then Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, this is the evil counselor, David's brother, answered and said, Let not my lord suppose they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for only Amnon is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he forced his sister Tamar. I don't know if he said every word like that, but <clears throat> he, that's the point. Um, I'm, I'm, in other words, maybe more. I sure would like to have seen his lying face tell it. Uh, of course he would know. He knew a schemer when he saw one. He knew Absalom was plotting this. He knew the day would come. Uh, who, but who told of of Jonadab's role in this. Probably one of the servants uh, leaked the story. Verse 33, 
Now, therefore, let my lord, the king, take the thing. uh, Now, therefore, let not my lord, the king, take the thing to his heart to think that all the sons are dead, for only Ammon is dead. Now, this indicates that Jonadab had prior knowledge of the crime before the crime. How would he know all this? Because, of course, he's that type of person. Uh, He probably did know. Somebody leaked it to him. That's what the intrigue of a palace is all about. Information is power. If I know something about you, I can probably use it to get something good for me later on. Or protect me. I mean, it's just an intrigue. Man, it's just, it's, it's hateful wherever it shows up when people do those kind of things. Verse uh, 34, then Absalom fled. The young man who was keeping watch lifted his eyes and looked. And there many people were coming from the road on the hillside behind him. And Jonadab said to the king, look, the king's sons are coming. As your servant said, so it is. So here's the creepy mastermind again, claiming credit out in front of him. See, just like I said, and you just can't like him. I mean, he's not as bad as Amnon. But if I could get two for one with one bullet, it would have been him. Uh, Just, okay, that doesn't sound very Christian. But if I was living at that time, it would be okay. Just just not now. Um, so the flesh always, you know, has its brand of justice. And it loves it in the Old Testament. But uh, Jesus, of course, comes and calls us to a higher standard. And to maintain any high standard, you have to sacrifice. There is no high standard that comes without sacrifice. Uh, growing up, there's a young man lived across the street. He rented from the people. And he was single, and he had a nice car. And that car, he would, he would be out there wiping that thing down as soon as the snow stopped. I am not kidding you. He had to have a clean car. And uh, it just, that was his standard. And, I, you know, it was, everybody would run to the window. He's out there. Uh, <laughs> it was cute. It was harmless. I mean, it was, it was not a bad thing. Anyway, he claims his credit. So it was, as soon as he finished speaking that the king's sons indeed came and they lifted up their voice and wept also the king and all the servants wept bitterly verse 37 but Absalom fled and went to Talmai the son of Amiad king of Geshur and David mourned for his son every day now that's important this part about David mourning for Absalom. Let's just finish verse 38. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years, about 50 miles away. It will be a total of seven years before he gets back in front of David and uh, at, since the, the, the crime against Tamar. Um, but verse 39, And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon. Because he was dead. All right, so he wants to just restore relationship, but it's too complicated. It would be inappropriate for David to reach out. And that's why Joab's going to bring the w- woman of Tekoa in to sort of set up a scenario by which David would look at the scenario and say, well, there's got to be grace and forgiveness here and restoration. And then they said, tell David, this is the story with you and Absalom. And uh, <clears throat> he's going to go for it. But then he's still going to block him 
from seeing his face, which will further infuriate Absalom. Uh, so we're going to be getting a few chapters coming up of Absalom as he gets worse and worse. And um, then we get Sheba's rebellion on top of that. So we've got a lot of action coming up. Some sword fighting, men. Um, so <laughs> uh, Anyway, his crime <clears throat> banished him from the face of his father, which, of course, is what sin does. And I, I think that in telling a story like this, that, you know, sin banished us from the tree of life, you know, when mankind fell into sin. And there had to be a way made back because sin separates man from God. And this is the kind of story that if you've developed a relationship with someone, you can share and uh, they come to Christ or at least they, they get the gospel. I don't know about you, but speaking for me, most people that I've led to Christ have come from me establishing a friendship with them. That's where the work is. And I, can, I mean, I don't know if you can count pastoral ministry because there's so many other things working on that. But, but just becoming a friend with somebody, now you don't have to be overly friendly. You, know, you don't have to loan them your car. I wouldn't advise that. That would really be friendly. <laughs> but David, and I'll close with this, David's loss of his ability to judge his home and his kingdom was guilt. I think those cutting words of Nathaniel really did it. And this is what Nathaniel said that might tell us why David was just struggling with judgment at this point. Nathaniel said in 2 Samuel 12, 6, in giving the story from God to, to David, God said about David, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And I, I think that just rocked David. It took a long time to, to get back from that because it was true. He, he acted as a savage, and that might explain it. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, uh, these lessons, as always, are always um, are very useful. May they, um, may they reach the ears of those who will benefit from them. May you use us to carry these profound lessons to those who may never pick up a Bible on their own until you put us in their lives. May you get us all home safely, we ask you. In Jesus' name, amen.